Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number 39 of Confessions of a Market Maker. I'm your co-host, Ray, a.k.a. All Day Ray, a.k.a. President of the J. Powell Fan Club. And I'm joined here by my charismatic co-host, former market maker of 20 years and present-day retail trader, a man who in his lifetime has sold so much worthless paper that he has environmental nonprofits coming for his neck. A man whose harmonic voice has been speculated to be the cure for COVID. I'm talking about the heartthrob of Eastern Europe. JJ, how's it going? Good, brother. How are you? I'm doing good, man. Doing real well. And our guest today is an investment professional with close to two decades of industry experience, a sought-after speaker and media contributor, appearing frequently at industry events and on major financial news outlets such as CNBC, Bloomberg, and Fox Business News, the chief investment officer of Spotlight Asset Group, originally from Worcester, Massachusetts, and self-described masshole, Miss Illinois International 2020. I'm talking about Shayna Cecil. Cecil, Shayna, how's it going? It's going well. You killed Worcester, but uh, oh, uh, uh, there's no H in Worcester. Oh, you're right. God, I I did my best. I was trying to get your first name right, your last name right. Uh, you know, it's totally fine. You would not be the first, and you will not be the last. Yeah, Shayna, absolutely butcher the the city I'm from. Oh, Shane, I really appreciate you coming on. Um, your your international pageant is coming up here this month. We wish you, you know, all but the best. I, I, you know, I know nothing next to pageants other than what I've seen in Miss Congeniality. Uh, what, what was the process like leading to you being crowned Miss Illinois International? So um, I had started competing in pageants when I was 15 years old. So mm-hmm. Worcester, Massachusetts is sort of a blue collar m- middle class, lower middle class city, about mm, 35 miles directly west of Boston. And um, there's a lot of trouble you can get into in Worcester. And my brother and I both didn't have the best influence in our friends, if you would. uh, That's, I guess, the nicest way to say it. Um, My dad was a police officer for the city and my mom worked as an inner city school teacher. So my dad was not happy to see the type of people that my brother and I were hanging out with. And so he he took various different um, routes to try to get us better people to be surrounded by. And for me, that meant he signed me up for modeling school at John Robert Powers. And it was while I was going to modeling school that I was recruited to compete in the Miss Massachusetts Teen USA pageant. Um, All of that is sort of leading up to the fact that that experience changed my life. It, It exposed me to people who were far more driven. They had much bigger dreams than I ever could have imagined. And it kind of led me down a path to success just by changing the people I was around and the people I was exposed to. And I don't think I would be where I am today had my dad not taken that step for me. And over the years, I've competed at various stages. And when we moved to Chicago in 2016, and my son was only about a year old, I was looking for ways that I could meet people that had similar ambition, um, that were similar age and similar stage in life. And so I entered the Mrs. Illinois International Pageant and I was first runner up. And then I competed the following year and was second runner up. And so it was my third attempt that I actually won. But it all kind of starts from the fact that despite what you see on TV, despite the stereotypes. Mm -hmm. And I think this is, they've done a better job in recent years putting the title holders out there that are really articulate and accomplished. Like the reigning Miss USA is a a lawyer and she's remarkable. Um, But pageants really do provide an avenue for personal growth. And at times in my life when I felt like I needed something like that, they've been a good outlet for me so that's kind of how I got to where I am today wow wow that's awesome is like leading leading up to uh the pageant the events like you, do you do like a lot of prep like preparation like what's what's the process like 
When I was younger, I did. I mean, now that I'm older, the biggest preparation is, you know, making sure that I go to the gym and don't let myself uh, <laughs> yeah. eat too much. <laughs> you know, quarantine and, and COVID lockdowns have not been great you know, from right. that perspective. Um, but, you know, gyms are closed. Having the uh, internal motivation to, to work out is not always there. Uh, but for me, that's been the majority of it. When I was younger, there was a lot more communication, mm-hmm. um, coaching where people helped you articulate better. There's an onstage question, you have a judges interview, but now, interestingly enough, a lot of what I do today harbins back to, um, all that coaching I got over the years when I was in my teens and twenties, uh, because it's really helped me with what I do today, which is going and speaking at conferences um, on various topics, mostly liquid alts, but various topics. Mm-hmm. And um, I do a lot of the media appearances. Obviously, I'm here on your podcast. And so a lot of that coaching that I had when I was you know, 15, 16, 17 years old has come in handy as an adult for sure. So there is some of that, but I feel like every day, <laughs> is a judge's interview and an onstage question in, in my everyday work. So mm-hmm. there's not a whole lot of prep for that anymore, the way I used to really focus on right. that. Now it's a lot more of like, do your crunches, do some squats, <laughs> and try not to eat a whole pizza. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. No, it, it's, 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 I always love to see when like things come like full circle in life. Uh, that, that's great to hear. So um, Shana, tell us what led you getting into finance, uh, and then take us through your career trajectory. Sure. So I got into finance completely by accident. I have an undergraduate degree in sport management, and I had thought for sure I was going to be a sideline reporter in the NFL or Major mm. League Baseball. I worked for the New England Sports Network when Heidi, uh, not Heidi Watney, I apologize, um, Wendy Nix and Kara uh, Henderson oh. were, were mm. anchors. Um, for a couple of their shows. And I really wanted to go down that avenue. I had, Kara Henderson was a tremendous mentor for me. She's really incredible and trying to help me, you know, explore that, that route. But it, it was not to be. Uh, and so I was looking for a job. I was working at a staffing agency, sort of trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And We had Morgan Stanley as a client. We were trying to find them financial advisors for their financial advisor program. And we couldn't get anybody in. We sent so many people to interview and they wouldn't hire anybody. So my boss got really frustrated and sent me in undercover to interview for a financial advisor training program. Mm. And they hired me and they offered me a lot more money than I was making, (laughs) which was a whopping $31,000 a year. And uh, so I took the job. And the rest is kind of history. I realized I really enjoyed the financial markets. I really enjoyed the morning calls and building portfolios. I didn't like the cold calling. I didn't like, it really was like boiler room back then. We're talking Mm -hmm. now 2001, 2000, where we just open up the phone book and start calling. And then every morning (laughs) my boss would put the call um, roles on the wall by uh, the um, operations area. So everybody could see who made the most dials the day before. And I hated that. But it was super old school. Like Tuesdays and Thursdays, we'd have to work till nine Mm -hmm. and they'd order pizza for us. Uh, It certainly was not what I had hoped for when I got into finance, but it led me down a different path. I went and got my MBA from Bentley University and took a job at Fidelity on their sales desk as a inside wholesaler. And I took that job with the intention of trying to see if I can move laterally. Fidelity is a huge, huge organization and has major headquarters in the Boston area. So it made sense for me. And that's essentially what I ended up doing was moving from the sales desk into more of an analytical role and then progressing my career from that point on. I've I've had a lot of stops along the way starting mostly in manager research. I was at Russell, I was at Mercer, Fidelity, back to Fidelity at Strategic Advisors, uh, a stop at Aerial Investments as a client portfolio manager and with Orion 
advisor solutions as the director of investment due diligence before I ended up at Spotlight. So it hasn't necessarily been <laughs> the straightest path, mm-hmm. but uh, it has certainly provided me with a wealth of experience that I wouldn't have gotten any other way, for sure. Uh, so what was the transition like when you, when you went from more of a, a sales role to the, like uh, you said, anal- like analyst analytical role? Mm-hmm. How, was, how was that transition? It, it wasn't that hard for me because I, I wasn't, while I was a good salesperson, I always hit my quotas. I was always top percentage of all this because in any sales role, they compare you to everybody else that's selling. And so I was always, you know, top decile, the quartile of my peers, but I, I never liked selling. I am just not a natural salesperson in that I don't enjoy it. Mm-hmm. I can do it and I'm decent at it, but I, I, I never liked it. I always preferred when I could get into the analytical nature of it. So it was actually almost a relief to get into a more analytical role because there wasn't as much pressure and stress of the sales aspect. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't a particularly difficult transition for me to make um, because I am one of those people that enjoys the analytical side more than the sales side for sure. Right. Right. So it's good transitions. Yeah. So, so Jay, you want, you want to ask her some, uh, uh, Oh, I'm, yeah, I'm, I jump into retail questions. Oh yeah. I am just so pleased uh, to be able to speak to you. Um, we have a lot of the people who listen to our show, um, you know, they're traders and uh, I'm always telling them about the other time frame or, you know, um, those folks like you who, you know, are, you know, building portfolios, looking at longer time frames for investments, 5, 10, 15, 20 years out and how they operate. And we don't really usually get to look into that world. So it's, it's wonderful to have a CIO here. So I was wondering, you know, when we talk about where you are now and, and sort of your, the time frames that you're, uh, you know, selecting, uh, investments for what sort of time frames do you look at? So it's interesting because in manager due diligence, you're selecting managers to put together portfolios that you hope your clients will stick with for the long term. So it really depends on the client, but you're looking at at minimum five years, maximum okay. would be wow. 30 to 40, depending mm-hmm. on if they're young and going into retirement, which is not that common. Um, if you're dealing with higher net worth individuals, unless they had a trust fund or they started a business at a very young age. So you're looking at fairly long time horizons and the portfolios you'll build will evolve as the time (laughs) lapses. But I look at things, it's interesting because I look at things from both a near-term perspective and a long-term perspective. So we look to build portfolios that our clients can stick with over the long term, but we will look at shorter term activity in the market and make tactical adjustments as we see fit. And then we're not necessarily trading individual securities, but we are oftentimes looking to trade ETFs or looking at managers who might have shorter investment horizons uh, for their underlying portfolios to invest in. And so there's a, it's, it's a nuanced aspect to what we're doing because we review our portfolios all the time and, and we'll make changes with a fair amount of frequency, but that doesn't necessarily mean we're buying and selling things as much as we might be adding allocation weightings to certain parts of the portfolio and reducing others as we okay. look at you know, opportunities in the market for sure. Okay. So we track a lot of things that traders do. I mean, we're looking at relative strength indexes. We're looking at momentum. Uh, It's not, our time horizons might be a little different, but we are paying attention to the same thing. And what traders do matters to us. Okay. Okay. It must've been quite uh, a challenge uh, being tactical in the last three, four months. Uh, How did you handle that challenge? So I am a big proponent and user of liquid alternatives. It's something I get asked to speak about a lot because hedge funds and any sort of alternative portfolio tend to be misunderstood and they can be complex. And so there's a lot of demand to better understand that and liquid alternative vehicles, which are 
ETFs and mutual funds are growing in their availability. There's also some rumor, not some rumor, it's, it's actually being considered, where they might make private vehicles like hedge funds and private equity available to, to folks without them having to meet certain accredited investment criteria. The sophisticated investor, yeah. Yeah, which I actually think is a huge mistake, but... I, I, I agree 1,000%. <laughs> I agree. I agree. The, the, I'm with you on that. Yes. Uh, the, the complexity is, is such that, you know, people get so caught up and hedge funds have big returns, but that's not always the case. Mm. I digress. Uh, <laughs> so when I, when I was, I've always built portfolios with an alternatives allocation. And so in the last few months, that's actually been a blessing. Okay. Uh, hmm. Having an alternative tilt to the portfolios. And in this case, my, my uh, coworkers and anyone who's worked with me before or seen me on television knows I kind of have one particular ETF that I speak of very favorably. Mm -hmm. uh, that's ticker is BTAL, which is the AGFIQ US Market Neutral Anti-Beta Fund, uh, which has done, it's up, I'm looking right now, 12.82% year to date. Uh, and it was, if you compare it to the S&P over the last couple of years, it's outperformed. Uh, but it's an alternatives portfolio and it's done really well. When the market went down, it absolutely killed it. So it's helped our portfolios and it's not a huge allocation, but I really believe that if you build in those types of diversification benefits that you can ride out these huge swings in the market a lot better than if you just stick with your traditional fixed income and equity portfolio. Okay. That's great. Um, we just had, you know, the end of the quarter and everyone was talking about, um, you know, the rebalancing activity. Can you, you know, kind of walk us through, you know, how you do your sort of pre-trade analysis or how that sort of the mechanism, the mechanics of that sort of work out? Sure. So we, we typically will do a quarterly rebalance to whatever our target allocations are for a portfolio. And those don't change all that frequently. We might make a tactical change, but that's not something we change on like a month to month basis. That's something that's more meant to where we see the market going in six to 12 months or 12 to 18 months. So the underlying allocations aren't gonna change great, greatly quarter to quarter. What we do is we do have a risk budget framework. So we look at each portfolio and the amount of risk it's taking, whether that aligns with our client's risk tolerance and their time horizon. And so interquarter, if anything in the portfolio breaches a 3% deviation from whatever the target is, we will make a change. We will look at relative strength as an aspect of that because what you don't want to do is trade when the momentum in it is favorable. And so if relative strength is at extremes, we might make slightly different decisions or let something run a little longer. Okay. But generally speaking, to keep our risk aligned with what our targets are, so our clients are more likely to stick with their portfolios, we have a rule that a 3% deviation plus or minus from the target allocation will generally uh, trigger some sort of rebalance activity. But again, we do look at other momentum and relative strength technical indicators just so that we're not trading at exactly the wrong time some of these things. Oh, great. Fascinating. Our, our listeners are, are definitely um, very thankful for that information because a lot of that is, uh, you know, sort of behind the veil, uh, mm -hmm. behind the curtain. Um, and I was wondering, now that you're at Spotlight and it's, it's a fairly new firm, how do you find working uh, in that environment different than a, than a Fidelity? Or a, um, do you enjoy it, um, you, know, uh, you know, having freedom? Or I, mean, I know you still do everything by committee probably, but mm -hmm. um, how do you enjoy the... It's certainly different. Uh, I think coming in with almost 20 years of experience at some of these really large organizations uh, provides some credibility to what I'm saying. 
and I come at everything we do with a really institutional approach just because that's my, that's my, that's where I come from. That's my, that's my foundation for how I invest. I do enjoy it, but at the same time, every place I've worked, I've been in one of the hyper growth areas of the firm and had a very much an entrepreneurial tilt to it. So I worked at Orion, I was the director of investment due diligence and I was a senior portfolio manager responsible for the direct index portfolios that uh, are part of the Astro offering, which do trade a lot. We traded those all the time for the tax management benefits, especially uh, from the beginning of this year onwards uh, until I I left Orion, We, we were trading quite actively to take advantage of taxless harvesting opportunities. So those two groups at Orion were fairly, they were in their infancy. Um, Astro launched their SMA products that I I helped manage while I was there. So I started there in September of 2018, and we went live with those portfolios in April 30th of 2019. So it's basically May. is when we went live. And so I helped develop and build those products and I was involved and I had a a say into the software uh, development as well. So again, very entrepreneurial. And then when I became the director of investment due diligence, that was when Orion decided to build an in-house due diligence group that didn't exist before. And I was tasked to build that. So very entrepreneurial in nature, very much starting from the ground up, very much growth engines, future growth engines for the firm, but in their infancy. Okay. That's, that's great to be involved in uh, the creation of product. Um, it's fascinating. Just a couple more questions. I'm, I won't hog you the, uh, the time. Um, how do you, you know, being a CIO, uh, how do you work with a, a PM that's in a slump? Um, you, what are your, uh, how do you go about doing that? So it's so funny you mentioned that because not just as a CIO, but when I was in investment due diligence and we were working with, you know, managers, portfolio managers from several different firms. And when I was at Fidelity Strategic Advisors, we would have separate accounts in the billions of dollars with, you know, a specific strategy and manager. And so this was something we would deal with all the time because not everybody's going to be performing to the, to their best at all times. So when it comes to dealing with a manager who's in a slump, it's, it's really important to understand why. So a value manager that's not doing well right now shouldn't be a surprise because if they're truly a value manager and they're sticking to their process and, and they're really focused on valuation and PE ratio and buying things that are, that are cheap or looking for things that are going to revert to the mean, those things haven't worked. Value hasn't worked for a while. So it may appear on paper that somebody might be in a slump, but then when you look at, are they still maintaining their process, their philosophy? Are they still doing what they say they were going to do and what they've always done? Then you cut them some slack. It's different when you start to run into, and it does happen, managers who get into a slump and then in an attempt to get out of the slump, try to make some sort of change to how they invest and get outside of what made them successful to begin with. And that happens. Mm -hmm. And you see that. I think for some of the smaller firms where it's only one or two strategies and the portfolio managers are a major influence on the overall firm, those managers tend to be given some slack. But at large firms, whether it be the Fidelities or the T rows of the world or, you know, Cap Group or PIMCO, those big organizations tend to have a much shorter leash, no matter how good the track record for the portfolio manager was when a portfolio manager starts to struggle. So taking those things into consideration when you're assessing the manager and understanding how the firm tends to deal with chronic underperformers is important because even if you understand why the manager is not doing well, if you know that their firm doesn't have a lot of tolerance for that, Mm -hmm. if it exceeds a certain duration is important. And because there's a good chance they might pull the manager off the fund or give him a co-PM or handcuff him or her 
And so knowing that's important, but how I deal with it is really on a case by case basis. And it all starts with, is the manager continuing to do the things that we hired them to do? And does the underperformance or quote unquote slump make sense with the current market environment? And if the answer to that is yes, we leave it alone. Okay. Oh, that's wonderful. I've and one last question. Um, what's your advice for, um, you know, young people who want to enter the industry and are looking to, you know, for future portfolio managers, any advice? Yes. Find and embrace mentors. I have been extremely fortunate to have amazing mentors throughout my career. And don't be afraid to ask questions and don't be afraid to fail because I don't know of a single successful portfolio manager in life that hasn't absolutely tanked at some point because they got the market wrong. You have to have a short memory. I think I, I wrote this in the interview yes. that I recently did, but it's almost like you're Tom Brady or Aaron Rodgers, right? Mm -hmm. You have a bad game and you throw a bunch of picks. You got to forget you threw a bunch of picks yeah. and just start over again. So you have to have a sh really short memory because there is a 100% chance that you're going to get it wrong mm -hmm. at some point. Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much. I will uh, stop monopolizing <laughs> the time to get away, Ray. Shana, uh, speaking of Tom Brady, how, how, you, um, how do you feel about him being in Tampa? I'm going to say something that probably won't be popular with my fellow Patriot fans. And I'm actually sitting here with my Pat Patriot t-shirt on. Mm -hmm. You can't see me, but I am wearing my Patriots gear right now. So it's funny you ask me this. I am not that sad to see him go. Okay. I am sad that the Patriots don't have a good plan for his replacement. And I trust Bill Belichick when he says that Jared Stidham is the is the heir apparent, but I'm also glad that they signed Cam Newton. Mm -hmm. But I do believe that Tom Brady is older than me. Uh, not by much, but he is older than me. He's going to yeah. be 43 or 44. And I'm sorry, but eventually you're not as good as you once were. And he may have his mind and his thought process and where he wants to throw the ball, but physically you eventually deteriorate. I realize yeah. I don't look my age. I realize he doesn't look his age. We don't act our age. But I, I, I guarantee you, he feels his age at times. It, yeah. It's just hard to not feel your age. So I think he might have a good year or two, but he's with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, so it's not as if the Patriots will face them often or see them often. And if he wins a Super Bowl for them, so be it. But I... I, I feel like Bill Belichick does a really good job cutting ties mm -hmm. with players at exactly the right time. He in does. It, no, it's incredible. That's why I said I wouldn't like, uh, I wouldn't doubt Bill Belichick's judgment at all. If he thinks it was time to move on, I, I think his track record speaks for itself. Sometimes he might let him go a year too early, but mm -hmm. I can't think of a single player that he has let go that was – supposedly in their prime that suddenly went to another team and absolutely knocked the cover off the ball. Right, right. I can't think for using a baseball analogy in a football discussion. <laughs> uh, I just can't think of a single player where that was the case. Yeah. No, it's, it's incredible. I got nothing but, you know, and, and I'm a Jets fan, Shana. So it is, no, <laughs> but I have nothing but respect for them though. I mean, it's, I'm just a football fan in general, but yeah, no, it's, it's, it's been a struggle. Um, Shane, you I know, you can always come to the dark side, right? <laughs> no, 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 absolutely not. <laughs> I'd be disbarred from my family. You kidding me? I can't do that. Ooh, yeah, that would have a winning team. Yeah, that's uh, all right. That's why I gamble, Shane. That's why I gamble on football. So I at least have Fair some enough. like excitement. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> um, I, I, I want to, um, I want to go back to what you, you guys were talking about with uh, struggling uh, PM managers. Um, Cause I guess this is something I think on as well. Cause what you were saying is like, you have a PM managers who will like stick to their guns, stick to their strategies. You'll have some that maybe might abandon the strategy too early or what they're good at too early. How, how do you toe that line to where, you know, okay, I, I do need to adjust or I stick to my guns. It's actually fairly easy um, to understand when it's time to cut a manager and I will almost always cut a manager that strays from their core competency, mm -hmm. uh, especially if they haven't done any work to 
to demonstrate that it was a concerted effort to try to improve something in their process. Because at the end of the day, most institutional investors, and I, as I stated before, I, I sort of think like an institutional investor because that's where I come from, hire managers to fit a role. And once you stray from your core competency and what you do well, you're no longer fitting that role in a portfolio. And so there are going to be other people who do whatever it is you've just shifted to better than you because that is their core competency. And it doesn't make sense to keep a manager in the portfolio who is straying from what they do best. So it's actually a lot easier to make that decision than you would anticipate. Right. Because it's pretty easy to use some analytical tools, factor analysis, factor attribution, to realize when a manager is just going off the reservation, right. if, if you will. Okay, okay. All right, so for um, retail trader like myself and, and probably majority of the audience uh, listening, what, if, if you were a retail trader or investor, what would be uh, your approach to the markets, you know, generally speaking? <sighs> well, I would try not to get so caught up in the headline risk. Right. And I would focus on looking at the technical long-term trends. The technicals have historically really worked. If you understand them and you understand how to follow them, I feel like a lot of traders, retail or otherwise, tend to get caught up in thinking that things are different this time and thinking that they've figured something out with the market that nobody else has, but I right. guarantee you, you haven't. <laughs> the focus should always be on doing what you do really, really well and knowing what you do really, really well, just like in a portfolio manager, right? Mm -hmm. And not pretending that the markets are different this time. They never are. Uh, unless, of course, the Fed is pumping money into the markets. That's a different conversation. <laughs> but what you'll find is that sticking to these rule-based approaches are always, in my opinion, the best way to go. And having some mechanism to keep yourself from going too far when you make a mistake is also really important. Being willing to t cut your losses is I think critical to success in any sort of trading role. Right, absolutely. I mean, pretty much everyone we've talked to, Jay, on the podcast has echoed that same sentiment. Mm -hmm. uh, Shana, how did you get into the media aspect of finance? So that comes from the pageantry mm -hmm. uh, experience in my life. As a kid, I just always loved being in the spotlight. I loved being the star in the school play. I wanted to have the solo at my dance recitals. I just was always that kid. And you know that kid, you, if you, anybody who has kids can go to their child's you know, Christmas or holiday show and there's always the one kid that you just know is a total sucker for the, the limelight. My son <laughs> is that kid. Uh, and they just like to be on stage. I was that person. So media is sort of the natural adult way to express that, that love for the, the spotlight, uh, no pun intended. And, um, and I'm just really comfortable with it. Fact is that public speaking and being on TV and speaking to a very large audience isn't for everyone. Not everybody is comfortable with doing that. And that's completely fine. There are things that I am not great at and I'm not comfortable with either. Um, but this is something I just happen to really enjoy doing and really like doing. And so it seemed like a natural fit for me when I was working for a small firm in the Boston area in 2008 or nine, I think it was 09, uh, when the, we, no, it was 08. There was a financial crisis, like the end of 08, beginning of 09. I was working for a small firm outside of Boston that uh, founder had written a book and he was doing a lot of media and he was looking for someone at the firm who might be willing to also do some media because he wanted to build the firm brand. And I raised my hand and said, I'll do it. And at the time I hadn't been in the business that long. 
seven, eight years. And I certainly wasn't somebody who had any sort of pedigree or credibility necessarily to any financial audience. But I was really comfortable on television. I was very comfortable in the media. And that must have come across to the outlets that were booking me because I started getting regular bookings with the local ABC affiliate, WCBB, the New England Cable News, CNBC. And I just found that it was something I enjoyed and I enjoyed talking about the markets. It's something I, I really enjoy doing. And it's also a way to keep yourself on top of what's going on, not just in the markets, but just in global world mm -hmm. events. Right. And from that perspective, there's, there's personal growth development opportunity to, to doing that all the time and always being on, on top of what's going on. It keeps you really focused. And the markets are ever-changing and always so interesting. That mm -hmm. it, it's, it's When I'm not talking about the markets all the time and I don't have a reason to be paying attention all the time, I can lose track of what's going on. And so being in the media and doing the media I really enjoy doing that because it, it helps me make sure that I am very aware of what's going on in the world. Mm -hmm. Shana, you mentioned earlier that, you know, your career trajectory was kind of a more or less like a windy path. I'm sure there was moments, you know, of doubt. Um, you weren't feeling well, maybe depression. What, what were your methods, you know, of combating uh, the, the down moments in your career? So there's been a lot of those. I think it's almost surreal to me that I'm the chief investment officer of a firm. That's always been my ultimate goal. And sometimes I have to pinch myself that I, I, I've achieved that. Because two years ago, I wasn't even sure I was going to still be in the industry uh, anymore. I, I was laid off from my job at Ariel uh, unexpectedly. And I just struggled for seven months. I couldn't by an interview and I and I felt really lost because I felt at that point like I had really progressed in my career and I was really excited about where it was heading and then I had no idea what I was going to do or where I was going to go and it was at the point you know five six months in where I was like I'll just take anything at this point I remember talking to my husband about you know maybe I'll just go work at Whole Foods I've waited tables before I will go wait tables. I started selling Park Lane jewelry. I was looking for administrative assistant positions at Northwestern. I was essentially just looking for anything so that I could pay the bills. And I thought my career in finance was over. And I had this awesome opportunity, Orion, which absolutely blew the doors open for how far I could go. And that's part of the reason why I'm here. But it's also not the first time in my career I, I had that happen. When I worked at Russell during the financial crisis, I was also laid off. It was a little bit different because I wasn't, I didn't have a child. I wasn't supporting a, a family. It was just me and my dog. And if I had to go live at home with my parents, yeah, it would be humbling, but it wasn't the end of the world. <laughs> and so at that time, I also really struggled because at that point, I was at a trajectory in my career where I still wasn't sure where the path was taking me. And I didn't have enough experience one way or another to, to feel like I was a really strong candidate for analytical roles or sales roles because I had been in sales for maybe half the time in my career. And then I had been in an analytical role for maybe three years at that point. And I was still pretty junior in both regards. And I didn't know where I was going. And so that was really hard because I had no clue how to pursue opportunities. There's also the middle of the financial crisis and finding a job opportunity had its own struggles and there were their own challenges at that time as well. No different than being laid off during a pandemic like I was back in March. So there have been a lot of times in my life where I've wondered like, what am I doing here? Am I really as good at this as I think I am? having confidence as an investor is super important um, because it, 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 it's how you succeed. You have to be confident that you're making the right decisions when they don't appear to be working in your favor. 
And so every time that I've had these turning points in my career, they've been really dark. 2018 by far being the darkest. But when I got through them, they really accelerated my career trajectory to a much better place. Out of losing my job at Russell, I got the job that I started doing media at. And after losing my job at Ariel, I got the job at Orion, which again, got me back into the media and, and put me in more of a leadership capacity. And losing my job at Orion got me the opportunity to be a chief investment officer at Spotlight, which was the dream job, which I didn't think was as close as it really was um, at the time. So every single hardship that I faced has led to an acceleration in where I was going in my career career trajectory. Mm -hmm. But I have to remind myself that every time I go through a dark period, that something good always comes out of it. And so there's meditation involved. There's a lot of soul searching and there's a lot of just your attitude and your attitude of feeling hopeful is like 90% of getting through those periods. And it, it's really, really hard, especially if it's for an extended period of time. I can't, I said it about a million times in the interview that I, 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 I did for you guys initially, but 2018 was a nightmare year for me. And it's funny because I say often 2020 has been a nightmare on many levels but it will never match 2018 for, for my personal struggle. It, 2020 has been a struggle just for everybody. And there's some comfort in knowing every single one of us is struggling right now. But I think just remembering that these hard times often lead to much better times is an important aspect of what's helped me get through all of that. Right. Right. Absolutely. No, I, um, Appreciate your your honesty. Uh, you know, a lot of people we 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 relate to these things, and um, you know, you know, not not to stick to uh, the, these darker topics, but um, you know, just really um, appreciate your story um, and to where you were, to where you are now, and you've you mentioned you survived two terrorist attacks, nine uh, eleven in the Boston Marathon. How has this changed your perspective and outlook on life? So it's interesting because those were two really impactful events in my life that will stick with me forever. And they were major historical events and, and they're certainly topics of interest, but my dad was a police officer in Worcester and Worcester is not exactly a low crime city. Um, so I've been exposed to the worst of humanity since I was a little kid in some way. Even though my dad tried his best to shield it to me, the types of things I've witnessed in my life, whether it be going to the Polish festival with my grandfather, my grandparents were from Poland, uh, my dad's 100% Polish. My dad was working that festival as a, a pay job, as they call them, and watching an old man die in front of me because he had a heart attack while my dad's trying to resuscitate him when I'm like seven. Wow. Or my dad had this affinity for any time he would see a car accident on the side of the road, he would always pull over. And I remember an Easter when I was eight or nine, where it was a particularly bad car accident. And he had been dressed in like a pink button down shirt with a tie. And when we got to my grandmother's house, he had to change because he had blood all over him. And I was, you know, eight or nine, maybe 10. Um, I, my brother and I, as I mentioned, did not have the best friends in the world in terms of influence. So we were exposed to gang activity and I've been held up at gunpoint in my life. So I, it's not exactly that I haven't experienced those types of things a lot. What I think it's done for me is it's hardened me to a point where I've seen a lot of dark things throughout my life. And of course, 9-11 was probably the most traumatizing for me personally. It seems odd to say this, but Boston was not nearly as traumatizing because I had been through that before and I felt more like I could help those who had never been through it before deal with the trauma than be traumatized myself. And so I think as an investor, it's hardened me. It makes me less emotional. 
and I'm just a very aware of risks in the world, but I also have learned how to live life. And that's why COVID has been so difficult for me. It is in my nature because I've gone through all of this to just understand life has risks and live my life. And now I'm almost being forced not to be able to do that. And it's not by my own choice. And so you learn those things over time. You go through these traumatic experiences and, and ultimately what you choose to do with those experiences and how you choose to use that as motivation or to do things to have impact and how that affects how you view the world is, is the key. Some people, it can ruin them. And I understand that. For me, it has hardened me. It has made me appreciate and understand the risks that life has, but it also makes me appreciate all the opportunities I get, all of the things I can do to live my life. And I really feel like through all these experiences, there's a, a reason I'm here. Mm-hmm. And I believe that even if I'm not entirely sure how I'm making an impact in the world, that in some way I must be because I've survived all these things mm-hmm. and hopefully I will continue to survive all these things. Absolutely. Not great. Awesome perspective. That's, that's amazing. Um, so Shane, I want to ask you some follow-up questions to the uh, beyond the trades interview you did. Sure. Um, you were asked about work-life balance and you responded, I don't believe work-life balance is a real thing. I'd like you to uh, elaborate on that. I don't believe work-life balance is a real thing. Um, yeah, like, like, yeah, like what does that mean? Yeah. So most people try to think that that's actually possible. And I'm telling you, it is impossible to keep those two things in balance. This is not a seesaw where you can just balance them nicely. <laughs> one thing will take priority over the other. And once you can accept that and not worry about, I'm not giving enough to my family, I'm not giving enough to work at any given moment, it's such a relief. It's the weight gets removed from your shoulders when you just realize there will be times where you have to make the priority your family and your life and yourself. And then there will be times where your work will take over everything. And if you can accept that, that there is really not a balance, there's times where one will outweigh the other. I think that that's freeing. And so I don't believe that there's quote unquote balance. I think that it's always going to have one thing taking priority over the other. And your acceptance of that makes it easier to make the decisions you need to make when one of those things requires itself to be the priority versus the other. Gotcha. No, that, make, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, that just sounded freeing. Um, mm-hmm. I know, right? <laughs> it did. No, because yeah, I think most people fall into the... Um, category of like, oh, I'm, I'm ignoring my family. Oh, I'm ignoring my friends, right? It's like too much work, work. Uh, but yeah, the way you outlined it, I think that's perfect. That, that is freeing. Um, next, next question. You said if uh, you told 22-year-old uh, Shana that she would be the CIO of a major investment advisory firm, making frequent media appearances, speaking at conferences, she wouldn't have believed it. What was 22-year-old Shana like? She was equally as ambitious and probably a little overconfident, but where I am today and what I'm doing today was so not on my radar screen, not because I didn't think it was possible. I didn't even know it was a thing. Does Mm -hmm. that make sense? Yes. You know, you live in a world where like, you don't even know that what a CIO is and you don't watch financial media. So you don't even know that's a thing (laughs) or like people who are on TV are famous and you don't put yourself in that category. That's what I mean. Mm -hmm. It's not that I wouldn't have believed it. It was, it would be like, that's something I could do. Like that's something that I could strive towards. I didn't even know that that was a possibility because I remember I, I came from, Worcester, Massachusetts. My dad's a cop. My mom's a teacher. My parents spent most of my early 20s trying to convince me to take the teacher's exam so I could be a teacher and have a pension. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, and I seriously considered that at times. It never even occurred to me then that getting out of Worcester was something I would ever do. And not that Worcester's a bad place and I wanted to get out of there. I just didn't know that was possible. 
And so that's what I mean when I say I wouldn't have believed you, not because I didn't think I would be successful in life, <laughs> gotcha. but what I envisioned it was successful. This is so far out of what I ever thought would be possible mm-hmm. that I couldn't have imagined that this would be where I'd end up. Gotcha. Gotcha. Asked about your hobbies. Uh, there was one that stuck out, genealogical research. Uh, what What is Miss Illinois International doing research in genealogy? I have been obsessed with genealogy since I was sitting at my desk at Morgan Stanley in 2001. It was right after 9-11. And so we were kind of had nothing to do because we were in training and the training got canceled and we couldn't start to cold call because we hadn't gone through the training. We couldn't start to build our books. So we were sort of in limbo. We had nothing to do, but obviously we had just been through this extremely traumatic experience. So the firm was kind of letting us go to trauma therapy and, and, and kind of talk to other advisors and learn how they were work with clients and the like. So one day I was just really bored and I came across the Ellis Island website and I just threw in my last name. Just see what happens. I knew my last, my maiden name is Orzik. It's Polish. And I knew it, you know, I never met somebody else that I wasn't related to who had that last name. <laughs> Want to see what happened. So I threw it in and like six people came up. Now, just to put that in perspective, most people have a last name where they will get lots of lots of people mm-hmm. come up that came over with that last name. Six people. And I knew them all. It's like my great grandfather, my grandmother, my grandfather, my aunt Sophie, my great grandmother, like they, and then like a couple that I didn't know, but turned out to be relatives. And then it started me down the rabbit hole of wanting to understand where I came from because I knew nothing. My family is relatively new to this country. My mom came from Ireland when she was a child and both of my grandparents are Polish on my dad's side. So my family hasn't been in this country all that long. And I've always been surrounded by immigrants, but I never asked them their stories and now they're all gone and I don't have anybody to know where I came from. So I, I got down that rabbit hole and I'm very fascinated by just history in general. Mm-hmm. So my family, I kind of hit a wall at some point and I had to hire a genealogist in Poland to do some work for me and got some more information, but I've never really been able to get very far on my dad's side, on my mom's side. Her maiden name is Flynn which is Smith in Ireland. Like everybody's last name is Flynn. So there's an opposite problem over there. Um, And so my husband asked me to start investigating his family as a joke. And I was like, cool, who are your grandparents, your great grandparents names? And he gave them to me and his family goes back to the Mayflower and he's related to all the presidents. And and then, then it became almost like a, a course in us history doing his side of the family. Uh, and that all fascinates me. If I'm not reading books related to finance or sports, which is my typical rotation, mm-hmm. throw in a history, a nonfiction history book about Teddy Roosevelt or Abraham Lincoln or just U.S. history or history in general, mm-hmm. and I'm there. So it just kind of speaks to that. But also genealogy is like a puzzle, and I have an analytical mind. Like I right. like solving things. Right. And if you think about it, building a family tree is almost like solving a puzzle. Mm-hmm. So when I am looking for ways to, to keep myself busy and occupied and keep my brain functioning at a high level, genealogy is where I go. Uh, Ancestry.com is awesome. Uh, the problem is I, once I fall down that rabbit hole, especially with my husband's side of the family, you may not see me for like weeks. It's a, it, it is it a rabbit hole. It becomes an obsession <laughs> for sure. Yes. Now that's funny. I, um, I have the same interest as well. Uh, genealogy is a fascination, uh, history as well. Um, so I'm with you there. All right, Shana, uh, we got some rapid fire questions, um, to wrap the podcast up, right? Okay, go for it. All right. Since you are Polish, right? Kielbasa or Italian sausage? Oh, kielbasa. Oh my God. I I don't even know why I asked. I knew he was going to say that, but okay. Anyway, um, do you watch, uh, Billions? I do not. Oh, you don't watch Billions. Okay, I'll skip that. Um, pros and cons living in Chicago versus Boston. Better restaurant scene, for sure. Much bigger city. Better airport to get places internationally. Mm. Uh, 
Cons, way more crime. Mm-hmm. Not as much history. Uh, and I miss the Boston attitude. I'm not going to lie. I, I, I miss the East Coast attitude. Definitely. What, was, what would you say a typical Midwestern attitude? They're is? very friendly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they can be very helpful, but I miss the gruffness of the East Coast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and they drive much nicer here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I take it you're an aggressive driver, huh? That's the term "masshole" we talk Masshole. about. Right, right. Oh, right. okay. <laughs> L- loud, aggressive driver. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, books you've been reading lately? So, I just finished up Homo Sapiens. I and I finished up Factfulness. I just enjoy those types of books. Mm -hmm. Uh, I really enjoy those kind of behavioral finance, understanding human history and understanding how humans think and interpret information. Um, So those are the two books that I've read most recently. Mm -hmm. Homo sapiens. That was real good. Uh, Musical taste. So it's interesting. The 22 year old me really enjoys gangster rap from the 90s and if anybody follows me on twitter they know i do my 90s slow jam saturdays okay where i have you know jodeci keith sweat Sweat, really oh wow yes uh those uh, johnny gill oh my god that kind of music you're taking me back to my bouncer days wow <laughs> going way back. Yeah. It's like my college years, which just tells everybody how old I am. That's definitely the kind of music I enjoy. I definitely like stuff with some bass and uh I have a hype up mix on my iPhone that I listen to when I'm trying to get myself excited about something and and get my excitement levels up. Uh-huh. But I also find myself listening to a lot of Frozen now it is because my son's obsessed mm. so mm-hmm. from a musical taste i would say i have this preference for the 90s gangster rap and 90s slow jams but i also like modern pop music as well to some extent okay favorite movie or movies oh god i hate this question because i can never narrow it down to like one or two i really enjoy field of dreams that's such an underrated movie. And if you're mm-hmm. in the Midwest or you're traveling to the Midwest and you can go to the Field of Dreams movie site, it is a religious experience. I highly recommend it. Really? It's something you would never expect to, to impact you the way it does, but it's totally a religious experience. Wow. I also, when I just looking to relax and not get too serious, I love Crazy Stupid Love with <laughs> Ryan Gosling and Steve Carell. That movie I could watch a million times, and it's funny every time. That is a good one, yeah. It is funny. All right, Shana, you're on death row. What's your last meal? Grilled cheese and french fries from Friendly's with the mini mozzarella sticks and finish it off with a Reese's Pieces peanut butter cup sundae with chocolate ice cream, all from Friendly's. (laughs) Man, they they just the, the, the Friendly's just shut down right around the corner from me. It's sad. It's oh, it's horrible. There's yeah, only sad. one left within, you know, a 20 mile radius of my parents, and it's depressing. Yeah. All right, uh, Shane. Uh, uh, workout routine. So I currently work out with a trainer, and we spend a lot of time doing core and lower body workouts. Um, we do a lot of hit workouts, but I mostly do weight training. I don't do a lot of cardio. So and yoga. I really enjoy yoga. Yeah, I'm not a fan of the cardio either. All right. And <laughs> so with that, that's going to conclude today's episode of Confessions of a Market Maker. If you guys enjoyed this show, please rate and review it for us. If you guys want to learn market auction theory, market profile, if you want to trade futures, trade equities, join JJ and I at microefutures.com and equitiesetc.com. Shana, tell the people where they can find you and uh, anything else you'd like them to know. Sure. I am pretty active on Twitter. So you can find me there at Shana S621. 
Obviously, as we started off the show, I am the reigning Mrs. Illinois International. If you go to mrsinternational.com and you look at current contestants, they're doing people's choice right now. I'd appreciate your vote. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can also find me on Instagram. My Instagram handle is financequeen2020. All right, great. JJ, parting words. Well, I am just, uh, I'm in awe. Thank you so much. Um, you know, it was wonderful having you. You know, uh, you know, a rose among two thorns this afternoon. <laughs> thank you very thank much you. for, for uh, very being much. with us. Mm-hmm. Yes, thank you very much, Shana. People, get out there. Go vote for her. Shana, uh, wish you all the best of luck. Where's the um, the contest? It's in Tennessee, I believe. It is in Kingsport, Tennessee. It will be uh, the 24th and 25th of this month. We are quarantined down there. We're going to be doing social distancing, but we are going to continue to have the competition. And I'm excited about that. It's a tremendous opportunity, as I mentioned in my interview, promoting financial literacy for women and the underserved minority community is a huge passion of mine. And this really gives me a platform in which to preach the gospel of financial literacy to a completely new audience. So I'm really excited for the opportunity. Yes, absolutely. Shana, best of luck. Keep up the good work. And so for Shana Cecil, I'm Paulie Walnuts. He's the gorilla of House Street. You stop, so. Good night, everyone.